Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. We're glad you've joined us, and we look forward to spending time again in the Word of God together. We also invite you to stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast for information about additional studies and resources. Thanks again for being with us. What is the purpose of our existence, the meaning for our lives? Well, that certainly is a big question, and the Lord gives us the answer here in our text today. So with that, let's listen as Pastor Phil shares from Revelation chapter 4. No, we were created, and until a person understands, until their worldview is such where they understand that God exists and He created us, they will never know purpose. They will never have a right understanding of life. Because as long as you think you're a gigantic cosmic accident, how are you going to ever have any purpose in life? Your purpose is going to be to eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die, and that's basically it. Only the believer in Christ understands that we have been made in the image of God, and God has put eternity in our hearts. We have a purpose on this life. Before we knew the Lord, we just floated like dead fish down the stream, Ephesians 2 tells us. But now we have life in Christ. And we are to move against the tide of the world, the current of the world, which, of course, the God of this world is moving everybody with. It's the philosophies and the attitudes and the hedonism and the meism and all the stuff that is rampant in our culture. Because people don't really have God in their hearts. Oh, they may intellectually say they believe in a God, but unless they really understand that they have been created by God for a purpose. And that purpose is to do what? If you got a King James, it says to bring God pleasure. Your new King James translates it, uh, and by your will they exist and were created, but God's will is that we would bring Him glory, which brings Him pleasure. So I have no problem with that. Until we recognize that our whole purpose for being down here is to bring God pleasure and not to bring ourselves pleasure. See, today people have it backwards. They think the whole purpose of life is pleasure and God exists to bring them pleasure and happiness. I've heard it. Well, doesn't God want me happy as they're living with their boyfriend or girlfriend or divorcing their spouse to marry somebody else because the spouse doesn't make them feel the way they used to? And you call them on it. So what are you doing? You claim to be a Christian. What are you doing? Well, doesn't God want me happy? How about this? You exist to make God happy. You exist to bring pleasure to God's heart. And until we understand that and live our lives in such a way as that we obey God, bring Him glory and honor through the way we live and so on, we're never going to really know. The beautiful byproduct of glorifying God is, you know what? Great joy and often happiness. But happiness is, is, a, is, is a state of mind brought about by outward circumstances. I'll tell you what's better than happiness is joy. Joy is an inward quality of the heart that's unaffected by outward circumstances. It's a, Joy is rooted in my relationship with Jesus, and that never changes. Oh, I may go up and down, and I may backslide here and there, but He'll never leave me nor forsake me, right? So uh, really, in a sense, my relationship with Him is a constant. And that will bring me joy, even in the midst of some pretty awful circumstances outwardly. But I exist, and you exist, to bring God glory. And what brings God glory is when we live our lives to, you ready? 
worship him. Do you realize that all of creation is moving towards one great culmination? A worshiping community that will forever praise and worship God. You see it here in Revelation 4 and 5. I mean, I don't know what heaven is going to be really like, but I know one thing. We're never going to get tired of worshiping God. There's a lot of people think, well, I don't want to go to heaven because I don't want to sit in the cloud, you know, and strum on a harp. And by the way, we will play harps. You say, well, I, I'm not very musically inclined. You will be. <laughs> you will be, I guarantee you. But you know what? I, I'm totally convinced that we will never get tired of worshiping and praising our God. All of creation is moving towards one great ultimate culmination, and that is a worshiping community that will forever sing God's praises. And really, that's what God is inviting people to be a part of right now. And again, let me just say it, because for the sake of those who are new, God did not, does not redeem us to keep us from going to hell. That was not his primary purpose in rede- saving us. If that was all God was worried about, was keeping us from going to hell, then don't create anybody in the first place. Then nobody goes to hell. That really solves that problem. What God, Saving us was necessary to get us to the primary purpose of our being created and being redeemed, and that is to be a true worshiper for eternity. Didn't Jesus say that in John 4? The Father is seeking those who will wor- true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. That's what the Father is after. A community, of, and he can't force anybody to worship him unless he makes them robots, and he won't do that. So he's inviting people, and I underscore the word invite. He's inviting people to come and be a member of his worshiping community. And, and I have to believe that as we worship God in heaven, somehow, some way, the byproduct is going to be intense joy like we've never known. Of course, you know the word worship is just a shortened version of worth-ship. It's a little hard to say, so we shorten it to worship. But it means to ascribe worth to someone. God is worthy to be worshipped because he's God. It's worth-ship. He is worthy to be worshipped. In fact, the Greek word often translated worship is proskuneo, which literally means to kiss toward it was used of a. It wasn't always used of God in the New Testament, or it was often used of an earthly king that you would, you know, somebody who was superior above yourself. You would take the hand of a superior, like a king, and you would kiss the hand of this king as a sign of submission and surrender to his authority. But of course, we use it with regard to God that we we kiss toward God. It's in other words, we are acknowledging His greatness. We acknowledge His greatness that He is God, and I like it that way. I'm so glad I'm not God. What would I mess everything up? And you would too. I'm glad you're not God either, by the way. But of course, as we have this attitude of worship to God in our hearts, it then boils over into the way we live. And that's what Paul said in Romans 12, verse 1. Let me read it to you out of the Amplified Bible, where Paul said, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, and beg of you, in view of all the mercies of God, to make a decision, make a decisive dedication of your bodies, presenting all your members and faculties as a living sacrifice, holy, which means devoted and consecrated, and well-pleasing to God, which is your 
reasonable, or in other words, rational, intelligent service of spiritual worship. That's a mouthful. But Paul is simply saying that our whole life becomes a form of worship to God when we live it in such a way is that God is everything, and we live our life in total obedience to Him, and we serve Him. Our service becomes our spiritual act of worship in some regard. Well, all right, that's chapter 4. Now, in chapter 4, is presented a pretty glorious scene, a pretty glorious view of heaven. However, down on the earth, storm clouds are gathering. As the salt and light have been removed from the earth through the rapture of the church, which Jesus said were salt and light, and because the salt and light have been removed from the earth, the church is now in heaven, we are going to begin to see the world degenerate and decay rapidly into wickedness, idolatry, and violence, starting in chapter 6. Until then, though, we're still looking at heaven. We're still enthralled by this view or vision of heaven that John lets us see. And in verse 1 of chapter 5, John said, And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. As John looks at the throne of God, he notices something in the Father's right hand. Now, that's significant. The right hand is always significant in Scripture because, and you can take a concordance and run some of this down, but in Scripture, the right hand is the hand of authority, power, favor. The favored one would be asked to sit at the king's right hand and control. Now, as John looks more closely, he sees that what the Father has in his right hand is a scroll. Now, assuming that the scroll that John sees in the Father's right hand is comparable to all the scrolls that John was used to in his day, let me tell you what those were all about. In John's day, scrolls were made up of sheets of papyrus, and they were 8 by 10 inches in dimension, so 8 by 10 inches made up one sheet of papyrus. They were connected horizontally and wound around wooden sticks. And then, of course, as scribes would write uh, on the papyrus, they would roll up the scroll, and, of course, it could get rather lengthy. Uh, Some of the smaller books, which would uh, be like um, uh, Jude, Philemon, 2nd John, 3rd John, they could all be written on one sheet of papyrus. A book of, like Revelation, 15 feet long. Isaiah, 45 feet long. I mean, they get pretty long. I mean, try to keep that in your bookshelf, okay? <laughs> but of course, these scrolls were used before the invention of modern style books, which consist of square pages that are bound together. They didn't have that back then, so they used uh, these scrolls. Now, the way the papyrus uh, was made into, papyrus was a reed. And they would, uh, they had a process where they would scrape out the pulp and then they would take and cut the reeds into strips and they would lay uh, first a strip side by side uh, horizontally, excuse me, vertically, and then another layer horizontally. The layer that was horizontal facing up would then be pumiced into a smooth surface which would be written on. The back side would remain uh, rather coarse and usually the back side was not written upon. But there were exceptions to that. We see it here. All right? We see it here. And by the way, they would write from left to right, or uh, from uh, right to left, I should say, and they would write in three-inch columns. 
as they would write, and then it would just keep unrolling the scroll, and they would keep adding uh, paper to it, and uh, you know, just keep writing and wrote, depending on how long the book was or the thing was you were copying and so on. But uh, there were examples of scrolls, many examples that were written on the front side and on the back. In fact, and of course, John says that uh, this one was sealed with seven seals. That was not uncommon either. Roman law dictated that a will was to be sealed with seven seals. This was not a will, though. What was common in those days for a, a scroll to be written on both sides was for a deed. And there were other examples, too. In fact, Dr. Robert Thomas, uh, in his commentary on uh, Revelation, uh, he's a scholar in this regard, says, and I quote, This kind of contract, a deed or some kind of important contract, was well known all over the Middle East in ancient times and was used by the Romans from the time of Nero on. The full contract would be written on the inner page and sealed with seven seals. Then the content of the contract would be described briefly on the outside or the rough part of that scroll. All kinds of transactions were consummated this way, including marriage contracts, rental and lease agreements, release of slaves, contract bills and bonds. Support also comes from Hebrew practices. The Hebrew document most closely resembling this scroll was a title deed that was folded and signed, requiring at least three witnesses. A portion of text would be written, folded over, and sealed. Now keep that in mind. With a different witness signing at each fold. A larger number of witnesses meant that uh, more importance was assigned to the document, end quote. What they would often do is they would write on the scroll, and as they would write, they would roll it up, and when they got through with a section, they would seal off what they had already written. Then they would continue writing some more, seal that section off, and the way it would work is that you would begin to unroll the seal, you'd have to, the scroll, you'd have to break a seal uh, on these important documents, read a section, then you'd come to another seal, break that seal, read the next section. This is how they did these very important documents. When we read about this scroll, we're going to find next week, it's, well, we find today, we're going to talk about it more next time, it was sealed with seven seals, right? In our mind's eye, we get the idea that the thing was rolled up, and along the edge were seven seals stuck to it, and all seven had to be broken before the thing could be opened. I don't really think that's what's going on from what I've been able to find out through my studies. You would break a seal and then read a section. Break another seal and then read a section. When Jesus begins to break the seals on this scroll, he breaks a seal and certain things happen on the earth. He breaks another seal and other things happen on the earth in that section of judgment. When you get to the seventh seal, and don't miss this, the seventh seal contains the seven trumpet judgments. The seventh trumpet judgment contains the seven bowl judgments. Those are not separate sections. They all belong to the section under the seventh seal. Now, that's going to be important as we study further in the book because it gets a little confusing at times. But keep that in your mind's eye. A good scriptural reference for this practice comes out of Jeremiah 32. I want you to turn there. And as you're looking for Jeremiah 32, and I better not hear pages tearing apart as if the gold seal is breaking for the first time. (laughs) 
Some of these books I can just, you know, I turn to Hosea. I can hear the gold seal breaking for the first time. But in Jeremiah 32, all right, the Babylonians are just about to conquer Jerusalem. The southern kingdom of Judah is about to fall to the Babylonians. Things have gotten pretty desperate, pretty desperate. And in the midst of this, something kind of unusual happens. And I'll draw your attention to verse 6 of Jeremiah 32. And Jeremiah said, remember, Jeremiah was the prophet during this time. He had been prophesying for 40 years about this coming captivity because the Jews had turned their backs on God. But it says in verse 6, And Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you. Uh, in other words, your cousin, Jeremiah's cousin Hanamel, um, will come to you, saying, Buy my field, which is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said to me, Please, buy my field that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of, of inheritance is yours, and the redemption yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. But that, isn't that interesting? Here's a prophet of God. The Lord speaks to his heart and says, Your cousin's going to come, and he's going to ask you to buy his field. So sometime later, Hanamel comes, says to Jeremiah, I got this field, you have the right of redemption, why don't you buy it for yourself? Jeremiah says, then I knew the Lord had spoken. It gives me comfort to know that sometimes a man like Jeremiah wasn't totally sure when God was speaking to him. I'm not totally sure a lot of times. So I'll just keep praying and seeing what the Lord does, what kind of doors open. Verse 9, so I bought the field from... Now, the interesting thing about this... They're going into captivity any day. Why in the world would you buy a field in Judah when you know in just a few days the whole area is going to be taken over by Babylon? You'd only do it if you trusted that God was going to bring you back someday and the land was going to be yours again. It was an act of faith. It was God's way of saying, you go, buy, you go do something that seems absolutely ridiculous, nonsensical, but I want you to do it as an act of faith. Because even though my people are going into captivity, I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to give them this, their land again. So I bought the field from Hanamel, the son of my uncle, who was in Anathoth, and weighed out to him the money, 17 shekels of silver. Notice what they do. And I signed the deed and sealed it, took witnesses, and weighed the money on the scales. So I took the purchase deed, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom, and that which was open. Uh, back then, they would have two uh, contracts that they would sign. One of them was signed and sealed, put into a safe place. We would put it into a safety deposit box or something. The other was kept uh, on open record in a public forum, like we would do at the Cook County uh, Assessor's Office or whatever. When you, when you buy uh, or sell land, uh, it's recorded uh, in a deed, and it's, it's, it's filed with the, with the county. And anybody can go and check it out. That was the idea. And then you had a copy, which you kept. Well, uh, Israel was about, Judah was about to fall. There was no place you could put it in public for public display. So Jeremiah takes both of the deeds and he hides them both. Okay. 
Verse 12, And I gave the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of uh, Maselah, in the presence of Hanamiel, my uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses who signed the purchase deed before all the Jews who sat in the court of the prison. Then I charged Baruch before them, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this purchase deed which is sealed, and this deed which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel, that they may last many days. Yes, seventy years. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. So you get right out of the scriptures this practice. And remember we said everything in the book of Revelation somehow relates to the Old Testament. So if you're Jewish, you understand when you read this in in Revelation, you understand exactly what's going on here. I want you to further understand, though, that land in Israel was never really sold. You realize that? You know why? Because it belonged to the Lord. Psalm 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord's in all of its fullness. But if you couldn't pay a debt, if you didn't have the resources to pay a debt, you could sell your land to your creditor, but it was really only a lease agreement. And it would, by law, contain a redemption clause so that if you ever did come into money, you could redeem your land back or... A blood relative, a kinsman, which the Hebrew is Goel, could redeem it for you. Does anybody know of a book in the Bible that this whole theme is the, the whole book? The book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is one of the richest little books you're going to find anywhere in Scripture. And of course, without getting into the whole thing, it's a story of a kinsman redeemer named Boaz, who's a type of Christ, who redeemed a piece of land for Naomi... And in the process, married Ruth, a Gentile bride, which is the type of the church. It's a, quite a story. But the whole story revolves around this whole idea of redemption. Redemption. And how that if you were a Jew, and you lost your land because you could not pay your debts, that a kinsman, a relative, a blood relative, if they had the means, could go ahead and redeem it for you and give it back to you. What is the scroll of the Father's right hand? Listen. I believe the scroll is the title deed to the earth, in which are written the terms of the redemption of the earth. Now follow me. In the beginning, the Bible says, God created the heavens and the earth. Who owned the earth? God did, by virtue of the fact he created it. And of course, as we read a little farther in Genesis, we read how that after God created the earth, he then out of the dust of the earth formed Adam, breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, and Adam became a living soul. And then, of course, at one point he took from Adam's side, maybe a rib or something, and from that made woman, Mrs. Adam, okay, Eve. (laughs) And then God gave to Adam and Eve the earth to be their possession. He gave it to them to watch over, to control, to, to take care of it, right? God gave this beautiful earth to Adam and Eve. They were to have dominion over it. They were to take care of it, treasure it as a beautiful gift from God. But we don't have to get very far into the story, Genesis 3, where the devil takes the form of a serpent. You, of course, know the story. He deceives Eve. She uh, goes ahead and eats the forbidden fruit, which God has said that they were forbidden to eat, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She gives to her husband, and he eats. They don't realize what they've done is they bought into the devil's lie, who said, if the day that you eat of the fruit of that tree, God knows your eyes will be open and you will be like him, like God. That sounds pretty good. 
Even though God had said, in the day that you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will dying, you will surely die. But they opted to listen to the voice of the devil, and they disobeyed what God had said. In that one act, two things happened. I'm sure Adam and Eve did not fully comprehend. In that one act of disobedience, sin entered into the human race. Spiritual death resulted immediately. They were severed from God. Fellowship was broken. But they also put into process what we call the law of thermodynamics, the entropy laws, which said that everything was beginning now at that point to run down, to get old, moving from integration to disintegration, from wholeness to rust and decay, etc. That whole thing was put into motion when Adam and Eve sinned. I'm sure they didn't understand all the physics of, of sin at that moment. But what they also didn't fully comprehend, I'm convinced, is that in that one act of disobedience, not only did sin come into the world and with all kinds of horrible consequences, but they gave the world over into the control of Satan. Satan became the world's new owner and man's new master. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. He said for